Thank you, Chris. Good to have you guys back. Thank you all for your understanding this past week, and I am very grateful for you. Uh, you guys are such a blessing to us, and I want to let you know that. And if I've seen anything lately, it's that God is a God of timing. We know that, and I've certainly seen God's timing in many, many ways. Uh, we did the father, my father-in-law's funeral at Tallahassee National Cemetery. He was in the Army, uh, retired as a major, and uh, had served in Vietnam. And so I reached out to a group of Army veterans uh, to understand better what to say to an army guy and uh, or about an army guy and uh, the big thing I heard was rest in peace. Uh, while we were on this trip um, I did the funeral of a former student of mine who had a heart attack at age 40 and his mother is a good friend of mine and uh, they just really appreciated me being able to be there and I felt like it was the timing of God and I saw God work and when I did his uh, graveside uh, something occurred to me you know when we do a graveside we say those classic words kind of adapted from the book of Job, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. That just seems kind of bleak to me. And so what I said for him and also my father-in-law was, he was here, now he's there. And very soon we will be with him up there. So rather than leave the family with a bleak word at conclusion, I wanted to leave them with a word of hope. And God really blessed that. And so it was just cool to see what God did. So he, he's amazing. I've always been convinced of his timing, but the longer I live, the more I see just how his timing is just so astounding. And I think we see that here at Frack, God's timing. Uh, I, I'm trying not to make this too long on announcements or, or things, but I think this is very relevant. The timing regarding G, uh, June 26 is pretty fascinating because uh, what I found out is the community not only will be Mountain Shadows, but they've invited the mayors of Louisville, Louisville and uh, Superior uh, to be there and you know that's where the Marshall fire was last fall that destroyed a thousand homes they'll be there I've been asked to do the invocation and I just think this is a real uh, timing from God to be able to be a part of this so I'm excited to see what God will do and it's our way of reaching the community so uh, I just think it's really really awesome so uh, you know this day and age in so many ways is a rocky time and it's very uncertain but I think today's passage has a lot of answers for us and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. And you know, you've heard of the flyover states in the United States, the middle uh, America states where you tend to fly over them and, and you don't ever get into them. Well, I think this is one of those passages, it's a flyover passage, if you will, where we tend to kind of look at it as like, well, that's nice, let's move on to the good stuff. But actually, I think this passage is really critically important and I wanna share it with you today. So turn with me to Acts chapter one. And while you're doing that, I am going to set up, and because I'm a right-handed speaker, I'm going to move this over here. Well, that's great. So I'm going to hold this up like this. Um, thank you. <laughs> yeah, Ryan, we're going to sing your songs backwards. Uh, here you go. Got it. Acts chapter 1, and let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and we just pray that you'll guide us uh, into it today and, and through it, and we just want to lift it up to you, uh, that you would speak to us and, and help us to understand what you wish for us to see and to know. And so thank you for our congregation, for the body of Christ coming together. Thank you for all you're doing in the midst of a crazy world. You are really working, and we're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts chapter 1 uh, and uh, if you're interested in the book of Ezra or interested in having an online Bible study next Tuesday, the 14th of June, I am starting an online study of the book of Ezra, and uh, it'll be on my Facebook page. 
And we can tell you more about it if you're interested, but I just want to let you know about that. June 26th, we've all been burned. That's a picture from Black Forest, but obviously we're dealing especially with Waldo Canyon. And then today, I want to share with you a little bit about making the Bible come alive, which I mentioned last time that I spoke. The process I developed to help you get into the Word of God better, and I mentioned 12 words, and they all start with S, and I'm wondering if you remember any of those words. Just one. How about the word C? So we want to help you make the Bible come alive, and those are the 12. C, seek, soak, story, stage, stars, sequence, sight, setting, speak, spec, spray. And so I'll explain more as we go along. We'll do bits and pieces of it as we're in the book of Acts. Interesting about story, God has engineered uh, the largest movie studio in the United States is right outside of Atlanta. We were there Friday night, and uh, God is using Christians to really have an impact there. It's just really amazing, and they're developing uh, a place for younger people to be able to tell their stories. And uh, we often forget how the Bible itself is full of stories. They're true, but they're stories, and they help us understand God's Word and what He wants us to see. In the book of Acts, we certainly see this. So as we go through the book of Acts, or any book, you can get much more out of your Bible study if you'll think about these different areas. And with um, C, we talked about it last time, you're observing things, but seek is the idea of asking questions about a passage. Now, this should not be that strange to you. You've heard about the journalistic questions, and what are the journalistic questions? Yeah, I mean, you guys are sharp. Who, what, when, where, why, and how? And I always ask these when I'm in a scripture passage, and definitely in the book of Acts we'll be asking those. And so today, you'll see that as we go along. Um, now, speaking of the when of everything, I shared this with you last time just to refresh uh, your minds about it today. This is the timeline of the early church. So let's talk about the when, and we'll talk about the where. That the Last Supper and the rest of Christ was Thursday, April 2nd. Crucifixion Friday, April 3rd. Resurrection, Sunday, April 5th, the Ascension of Christ, which we looked at last time, Thursday, May 14th, and the day of Pentecost, and, and by the way, on the church calendar, this happens to be Pentecost Sunday, which I thought was going to be really awesome, because we were supposed to be in Acts 2, but we're not, but it's still Pentecost Sunday. But the day of Pentecost in Bible times occurred Sunday, May 24th, and so you see that time frame there. So there's a 10-day period in which the disciples are in the upper room, uh, they're there's about 120 of them. I'm sure they went in and out and all that, but uh, they were praying for God to do what he was going to do next. They were seeking the Lord's will, and fortunately, they were staying there waiting for God to work, and they didn't just venture out on their own. A little more about the timeline. One thing we tend to forget, Acts has 28 books, uh, chapters in the book, and we tend to think that they all happened like boom, boom, boom. They did not. There was a period of over 20 years from the beginning to the end of the book of Acts. So it kind of stretches out, and I'll help you understand that as we go along. The crucifixion, the resurrection, A.D. 33, that's when the book of Acts begins. Paul is converted a couple of years later. The famous Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15, took place, we think, in A.D. 49. Paul was put into prison around the 60s when he wrote some of his famous epistles. Like we were in the book of Ephesians, that's one of the epistles. Uh, and Paul died, we think, in A.D. 67. There were periods of persecution throughout this time, off and on. So that's a timeline. So you understand there's quite a bit of thing, uh, material that happens in the book of Acts. So what I want to do for you, preaching through it, is to help you every week frame where we are in the book of Acts, what's going on, 
uh, literally where it is. Here's the Roman Empire back in the day. Uh, you see the extent of it all over the Mediterranean region. And that red box, of course, is the land of Israel or Judea at that time and uh, Galilee and so on. And so that's a blow up of the region that we call Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. Judea down there, the big red dot, is the city of Jerusalem. And uh, so that helps you understand it a little bit better. So that's where we are right now, and I'll help you understand that each week. Our location in Acts chapter 1, the last half, is Jerusalem. We are not going to go out of Jerusalem today. The meeting place is in the upper room. Might be the original upper room that Christ had the Passover in, but that's an assumption. The structure, now notice this, I'm going to talk about the church structure. At this time, this is your church. Eleven apostles. I thought we had twelve apostles. Where's the twelfth? Yeah, that was Judas, so he's no longer there. And we had 120 followers total. About 120, it says. Well, by the end of chapter 1, we're going to have 12 apostles, which we'll talk about today, and still around 120 followers. The book of Acts... Oh, by the way, Toasty says hello to you. So the audience is the 11 apostles and some followers. Now, the growth report, I'm going to keep you apprised of this in the book of Acts because one way to understand the structure of the book of Acts is to look at how the church grows and we have growth reports throughout the book of Acts and added to the church every day we hear about and then it'll be multiplied the church multiplies and then it's exponential now when I showed this the last time the feedback I got was Sid this is great but all we see is three lines up here and that's kind of exactly the point and the reason is we have 120 people in the church at that time. Now, if you look around the room, I don't know the attendance number today. It doesn't matter, but you're looking at about the number we have in here today or thereabouts. So you think about this. Just look around the room and see this is the number of people that were there when the church began because all the thousands had fallen away from Jesus, and so this is what they're left with. And yet they changed the world, so be encouraged. The 120 is actually on the screen. It's just very hard to see. That chart goes up to 220,000. And if you look down where the zero is, can you barely make out that faint line? That's 120. And that's the point. Isn't that amazing? So that's what we're starting with. And I think it just, it just helps to understand that. Um, we're in the infant church. And I'll come back to this slide in a moment. So there's two major parts to today's passage. Number one is the body is going to gather in the upper room and cling to each other and to God. And number two, the second thing is the body is going to select a 12th apostle under the guidance of God. So let's take a look at the scripture here and uh, Acts chapter 1. And we talked last time about the ascension of Jesus Christ. And today we're going to pick up what happened after that. But the Holy Spirit has not yet come down. So here we go. Acts chapter 1, and let's take a look at verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. So it's a short trip. And when they had entered, they were, went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, 
and Judas the son of James, not Iscariot, but Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. And it's important for us to have 12, and I believe it was essential. And now in chapter 2, after this is done, then the Holy Spirit comes down on the day of Pentecost. So I think this was essential. So there's quite a few things going on here. Um, I am not so sure that anybody in church history has ever used verse uh, 19 as their favorite memory verse, or uh, not 19, but verse 18, about what happened to Judas when he fell. But for some reason, they wanted you to know this. They're basically identifying Judas, and so there you go. So they're back in the upper room, and without the Holy Spirit and without Jesus, God gives them 10 days. Why would they need 10 days? Well, for one, they needed to select the next apostle to fill the 12. Number two, they had to process what had happened with the death of Jesus, because remember, you go back to that chart, this stuff has happened in a relatively short time, and they are probably bewildered. They're trying to figure this out. The next thing, they have a chance to prepare for what is to come. Like, what is going to happen? We've got to get ready for it. They are given abundant time to pray together. Obviously, prayer is a theme in the book of Acts and certainly in this passage. And you know, they had to have been motivated by Jesus' example, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane, where when it got intense, and even when it didn't, his recourse was to go to prayer. So they really get after it now, and they have this concentrated time. And I love down here, uh, I'm not going to repeat everything you've already read, but in verse 14, with one accord, they were unified, they were devoting themselves to prayer. And I love this word here, the Greek word, all right, I know it's not seminary, but still, I think this kind of thing is important. Um, so the balance is, let me share with you what this word means. One of the uses of this word is to stick close to. They wanted to stick close to God and stick close to each other, so they came and they prayed and they devoted themselves to it. They stuck close to the Lord. They continued in it. That's another use of it. 
And even though God is not visible, they are sticking close to him. And I don't know if you've thought about this. This is an interesting apologetic conversation. You cannot see God directly, right? And so you trust, that's faith, is trusting in someone you cannot see, but you perceive and you certainly see what he does. And I don't think we, we think about that quite enough, that our Christian walk is a walk of not only trusting, but glorifying and honoring someone we cannot see. And I, God gets the glory, but I think for us, I think it's very bold and I think it's brave and it's honorable for us to have that kind of faith in someone we cannot see, trusting that someday we will see him. And uh, we, we tend to forget that. So I just wanted to share that. And I, I want to thank isn't the word. I want to just uh, tell you how honored I am to see a group of believers who actually will trust the Lord even though they don't see him. And I think that's a remarkable thing. And what we're trying to do in our sharing of the mission is to try to get people who don't currently acknowledge him to see him, so to speak, and to acknowledge him and to receive him. And that's a part of what our evangelism is all about. So this body of Christ trusts him. Now, they have seen Christ, that's true. But uh, this word, just by the way, Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Acts 2.46, day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. It's the same word. Acts 6.4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So a fair question is if we were to ask each other, is our prayer life personally devoted, how would we respond? If I were to ask you or you were to ask me, do you have a devoted prayer life? Could I say yes? And that's an ongoing challenge in our busy world. Acts 8, Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Same word. And then finally, Colossians 4.2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There's no doubt from what we see with the early church that prayer is the weapon. It is the tool of choice. It's a major theme in Acts. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in Acts and 20 of its 28 chapters. Prayer is essential. Uh, it's really great that today, after the service, we're going to have a prayer time. We're doing well. The community prayed together before they made decisions. They prayed together about mission, and Acts is all about mission. Prayer will, when we pray together, will maintain unity. It will build unity. And if the body does not pray together, then pray, tell me, what is it possibly doing to build and preserve unity? So it's a good thing they were in unity. Have you thought about this with the early church, you know, right here with Acts chapter 1, 120 people? Have you ever thought about this fact that if any of them were dissatisfied, there was no church down the street to run to? If I was preaching this in Georgia or even in Colorado Springs, it's like, well, you go to the church on a corner because there's four of them on each corner, right? They had nowhere to run, which meant this group was it. It was their only choice. Now, all of us have hopped around looking for a church that honors the Lord and honors his word. So, you know, if you've ever looked for a new church, don't take this personally. That's not the point. I'm, I'm, I've done it as well. I get it. But here, they didn't have that. There was no first Metho Presbyterio Baptist church to go to. 
and there were no church buildings. And a lot of times in our churches, church growth is often from children being born, which is great. We want to have children born for sure, or people just moving from church to church. But uh, what I would like to see is in addition to all of that, I want to see people coming to Jesus Christ because we're sharing the gospel with our community. So the church in general has a scarcity of church growth through the gospel sharing and conversion. I might have told you when I was in Georgia, somebody asked for our statistics about baptisms. I'm like, well, you know, three years ago we baptized seven, two years ago we baptized six, last year it was seven. And for a church that proclaims that it's all about evangelism and it's a large church, that's a terrible statistic. So we're just not doing good, doing well as a body of Jesus Christ in actually reaching new people with the gospel. And that's my big prayer. I know you share that prayer. Uh, so, you know, I'm just, just saying we all are concerned about it. Let me give you now uh, a few points. I've got eight points here. Characteristics of the baby church or the infant church in this early part of Acts. And Brandon has asked me to use this particular transition. Number one, they were small in number. Mighty in commitment. If you want to write this down, feel free. If not, Alicia can remind me to, uh, we could post the slide if you wish. Uh, either way. Number two, they clung together and covenanted together. Number three, they resolved something that was left open, that something being the departure of Judas, so to speak. Number four, they operated in obedience, doing what they had been told. Number five, they were patient, waiting for the Holy Spirit Number six, they prayed in preparation as they waited. And number seven, they sought the Lord's will with one mind in that prayer. And number eight, they assembled and ready to carry out God's mission. Well, of course, all of this only applies to the early church, right? I think we could do quite well to be that way ourselves. What do you think, yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. And so when I look at the early church, it was like, well, the reason that it went so well, obviously God was in it. But this is what they did on their side, and they prayed, and then the Holy Spirit came down and empowered them for the mission, but they had already gotten their hearts right first. And if we don't pray, honestly, we'll never get our hearts right. You can have all the church structures and programs and policies you want, but if you don't get that right, it won't matter. You know, modern society is uh, very individualistic and consumeristic. If you don't like what you see, go somewhere else, whatever, you know, showings come and go. It's kind of like going from one theater to another. But for the early disciples, there was no other theater. Top Gun was the only movie showing. That was it. And I think this year, one of the tests for FRAC is, are we a covenant community, a covenanted community, or merely one of the best Bible theaters around? Now, it's not a sermon without a quote from Charles Spurgeon. You know this, John Calvin, John Piper, etc. cetera, uh, A.B. Simpson. So I've got a Piper quote for you this morning. He had some good comments about church covenants. I think this is really interesting to hear. One of the reasons we don't feel the necessity of a church covenant today is because we take the existence of local churches for granted. There are thousands of them. So we don't often ask the question, what constitutes a visible local body of believers as a church? This is really interesting, I think. But put yourself back into the early 1600s in America. As the early Congregationalists and Baptists struggled with the formation of new churches, they wrestled with 
just what made a group of people into a church. I've been reading the biography of Martin Luther by Eric Metaxas. Have y'all read that? If you haven't, it's, it's really fascinating. And uh, one of the dynamics was when they, so to speak, threw off the Catholic Church, they threw off the Catholic authority. Luther wasn't trying to, but once it happened, he was like, well, if we throw that off, what are we? Thomas Cranmer, who developed the liturgy for the Church of England, a.k.a. the Anglican Church, wrestled with the same question. If you throw everything else off, what are you as a church? And I think to some degree we wrestle with that. What are we as a church? So Piper goes on to say the answer given again and again was that what made a group of persons a church was a covenant, a solemn pledge to one another that they would believe in Christ and worship and minister in common. For example, in 1649 in Cambridge, Massachusetts, John Cotton, Richard Mather, and Ralph Partridge drew up a model of church government which reasoned like this. God wills for his people to gather in visible local churches. But, they said, this visible union cannot be established by mere faith, for that is invisible, nor by a bare profession of faith, for that does not make a person part of one particular church or another, nor by what he called cohabitation, in other words, living in the same community. For, he said, atheists and infidels may dwell together with believers, nor by baptism, since baptism by itself does not make a person a part of a particular church. What establishes the visible union of a group of believers into a church is that they make a covenant with each other to be the church. This is the origin of a church covenant. And I think that's one of the challenges for us today as a church to think, do we have a covenant relationship together? How extensive is that? Um, what does that mean in terms of my relationship with you and vice versa? You know, and that's something we're thinking through. I don't think it's easy in America to have a church covenant for many reasons, right? So anyways, it's something to think about, but that's what, that's what drew them together and there was no other option. Another thing I noticed that we will be coming back to in the coming weeks, I think, in, in various ways, in verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, because we talked about that, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I just think it's interesting that um, it wasn't just the apostles. It was the whole body that got together and talked through these issues. I think that's interesting. You had the 12 apostles but they also engaged everyone else in the covenant community. The other thing I, I think, this is kind of an aside, look at the mother Mary here, she's here. I am sure that she got an above average degree of respect and deference in the early church, right? I mean, how could it not be? Because you're looking at her and you're looking at the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and now they're in the body because they were skeptical when Jesus was walking the face of the earth. And somewhere along the line, they saw what was really happening. They received him. But I think it would be fascinating in the early church to have had the family of Jesus in your church. Wouldn't that have been interesting? And especially with the Mother Mary. Now, I'm not going to go off on all the veneration of Mary stuff, but I, but I can understand why it happens because you see her prominent place. So now it's time to select the 12th apostle. Go with me in verse 15. So then Peter stands up in front of the company of believers, and he is convicted that the structure of the group is not right. They don't have 12. There are now 11. There were 12 tribes. 
There are 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes, so they're missing one, and they were convinced it had to be God's will for them to fulfill the 12th. And the candidate must be a man qualified as a witness to the resurrection. That's what it says. And one who accompanied them during the entire time the Lord Jesus was with them. Someone who knew what Jesus did on the earth and knew what happened in the resurrection and afterwards. And if we have a total body of around 120, there are not a lot of candidates to choose from. I just think it's kind of interesting from a human dynamic perspective of were there other guys there who were not nominated? Yes, they were not mentioned. And uh, <laughs> I wondered why, this is a modern American talking here, but uh, okay, you see that there were two names proposed. Who were they? Joseph, a.k.a. Justice, and Matthias. <laughs> Joseph said, well, the way the vote went, I would have been apostle number, I'm apostle number 13, but, you know, I miss being in the 12. I mean, you know, I finished number two. So I, you know, I often wondered, I can't answer it, what was it exactly that made him not the candidate and made Matthias the candidate? That's just a journalistic question I do not have the answer to. So they end up selecting them. They went to the Word, and they, uh, they appealed to the Lord, and the Lord gave them an answer, and God made it very clear. Just a few things about this. Um, when you look at the statement of Ju regarding Judas, uh, I believe that whole thing with Judas was Satan trying to torpedo the early church right out of port. Satan got into Judas. It was his initial attack on the disciples to sidetrack them. Uh, it's kind of fascinating too. I mean, I'm just sharing with you what the scripture says. When you look at uh, in verse 18, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. I'll probably never get an amen on that verse. The pouring out of Judas's insides is the same verb used for pouring out the Holy Spirit in chapter 2. But I digress. I don't know that I'd make too much out of that. But I will say that it's reminiscent of the fate of Jezebel. This is what I think about when I read this. You remember the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament, the very wicked, evil queen. She was thrown down. She was all bloody, was eaten by dogs. Justice was meted out on satanic corruption Corruption will die in a corrupt way, and I think that's what we see here with Judas. Now, I notice again the whole community is participating in the deliberations of what to do moving forward. The whole community is united. They use prayer together. And uh, then uh, let me move further down on the passage. As they're thinking about whom to choose, you'll notice that in verse 26 they cast lots for them. The lots were probably stones with a name on them. They were shaken in a bag or a vessel until one fell out. The lot kept it objective. Uh, nobody had to campaign for the post. It prevented rivalry, and God used it to show his choice. Now, we've often said you could theoretically use lots today if you really, really, truly trusted the Lord, but I will say that this is the last time we see lots used for making a choice in the New Testament. And that uh, what you'll see, the two other times when they choose a candidate in the book of Acts, they do not use lots. But remember, the Holy Spirit has not been poured out on the church yet. In Acts chapter 6, when they choose what we call the early deacons, the proto-deacons, they use prayer in Acts chapter 13 when they select Barnabas and Saul for the first missionary journey. It's prayer and fasting. So there are no longer 
any lots to be used. Daryl Bach said, with the 12 restored, the table is set for the coming of the Spirit. Readers of the book of Acts are to understand this passage, not only as an explanation of how Judas was replaced, but also a precedent on how to seek God as a community in making decisions. Their prayer, fasting, seeking the Lord. Interesting conversation I had the other day. You remember the church in Georgia? Not to keep harping on that, but uh, last Sunday, ironically, while I was there, uh, they had their Sunday of deadline for elder nominations. And the next day, I was sitting on the town square at a coffee shop looking out and talking with a buddy of mine. He's like, here's the problem I have with that is when you make nominations, it's like a, an election process. He's like, this is not an election. This is seeking God's will for who the candidate should be. But that's certainly what we see here in the book of Acts. So there's just so much going on. But rather than just passing over this passage and saying, well, this passage is just holding place until the Holy Spirit comes down, I think this passage today was essential for God to prepare the church for what he had next. The 12th apostle is chosen. He is legitimate. He counts and then, by the way, when the apostles died out, they were not replaced. But the apostles would choose elders in the cities, and uh, the elders would carry on the leadership. So that's what you see. There was not a need to replace them after this. Have you all seen this photo? This is uh, somewhat slightly related to the book of Acts, but I want to conclude with this today. Have you all ever seen this photo? Now, this, is not, uh, this is not a Photoshop. This is a real photo. Um, you know, we go through storms of literal types, but also, you know, storms of life in different ways as a church and as individuals. And at times, the storms will come crashing down on us, and uh, it gets overwhelming. And it's easy to forget that there's a God. This is the Lajumeau Lighthouse off the northwest corner of France. In December of 1989, a major storm came through, and the seas were very, very rough. And a helicopter flew over to take photos of the storm. Well, the Lajumeau Lighthouse is right here, and that's obviously the base of it. And I'm sure you can see that there is a door, and there's somebody standing outside the door. That is the lighthouse keeper, Theodore Malgorn. So what happened was with the storm... Malgorn heard the helicopter and thought he must be getting rescued, so he opened a door and stepped out briefly, and unfortunately, he stepped right back in because he would have died. He would have been swept to sea with that giant wave coming over. And the storm actually ended up hitting the lower part of the lighthouse. It penetrated the lighthouse in the lower part. And I use this because I think, you know, sometimes this is like our lives, what we've been through individually and maybe even as a church. Uh, churches go through problems. We go through the storms. And at times it seems like we're going to have them crash down on us and sweep us to sea. But Jesus Christ himself is the lighthouse. And by going back in that lighthouse, Theodore saved his life. And if we'll go to the refuge of Jesus Christ, we'll get through our storms. He'll carry us through. He'll protect us. And so whatever you've got going on in your lives, there's plenty of things going on. Trust in the lighthouse or the lighthouse keeper, if you will, Jesus Christ, and he'll get you through. Would you pray with me?
Father God, thank you so much for your book of Acts. Uh, thank you for this passage. Just a fascinating little passage here about what they did. More than just the decision about Matthias, what we see is they really trusted in you. They got on their knees and they prayed before you. They took everything to you. They did it as a group. They, they had the kind of trust that you would carry them through and you did. God, I pray that we'd be those kind of people that we would have such faith in you that we'd get on our knees and call out to you to see what you have and that our decisions and directions would be because you have led us that way as a unified group. And I pray that for FRAC. I pray for each one of us, and I pray that today as we have the time of prayer that that would be our spirit and that you would uh, show yourself faithful, that you would show yourself present, and that you would bless the result. We put it in your hands in Jesus' name. Amen.